Welcome to the HVMN podcast. It's your host Jeff Wu, and thank you for tuning in. How do you know if you're properly eating keto, or are you intermittent fasting correctly? You might feel the state of being in ketosis, that subjective feeling. And then there's quantitative measures, the biomarkers of being in ketosis. There's devices that measure blood, urine, and breath. Each has their pros and cons. I can tell you that I don't necessarily enjoy sticking my finger for blood, for example. Practically speaking, many, if not most, people aren't going to be pricking their finger for blood to check if they're in ketosis. A new company, Keto, spelled K-E-Y-T-O, is aiming to make both the ketogenic diet and how you can measure it more accessible through a breath meter and a phone app. Dr. Ethan Weiss, the founder of Keto, hopes to fill that gap with the right balance of ease of use and science. Ethan and I discussed the ketogenic diet as a viable option for improving metabolic and cardiovascular health, what sets apart keto's device versus other devices, the considerations of tracking ketone levels via acetone, and the best practices to drive positive behavioral change. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Ethan Weiss, thanks for coming by the office. It's my pleasure. Good to be here. So you have an interesting background. You have a clinical cardiology practice. You have a research background as a publishing academic, and you recently stepped into the entrepreneurship space with Keto, yeah. spelled K-E-Y-T-O, which is a keto app or keto diet, breath meter, and app supporting app. Um, a lot on your plate, but just, you know, I think it'd be helpful to give context for our audience. How did young... How, how, how did Ethan Weiss maybe, you know, 20 years ago get along this path? So the short answer is my dad is a cardiologist. And so I grew up around medicine and grew up around science. And But I was a, like an atrocious science student as a in high school. I mean, I was actually pretty, pretty much of a mediocre student throughout high school. And I went to college thinking that I was going to do something non-scientific and definitely non-medical. I had no interest. And at that time, felt like I had no aptitude to do any of it. Um, and so I went to a small liberal, liberal arts college up in, in New York State and initially kind of intended to, to study music, but pretty quickly found out that I didn't have the talent to do that. And so I think it was only because I was in that environment where where they're just like there really was no science. I mean, I think they've actually really bolstered their science in the past 25 years since I've been gone. But but at that time, really, like it was there were hardly any science majors. And so I think it was friendly and unthreatening or non-threatening to me. So I, I decided to take a couple of science classes and ended up finding like at that stage of my life without the pressure of being in like a super hard charging, you know, all boys private school in Baltimore that I, you know, really liked it. And so I just sort of did one of these, like, I'll do another one and I do another one. And then I thought, well, gosh, if I'm like liking the science, I'm pretty good at it. Maybe I should just do medicine. So I, I ended up going straight through to, to do medical school, but, but it's still, when I got to medical school, I was like one of 10 non-science majors in my class. And, you know, we were quickly like allocated to the bottom of the class. It was a sort of a funny adaptation going to medical school at that time, because we were ranked, uh, you know, one through whatever it was 120. And I think most of us were used to being kind of toward the top of our class. And by definition, you take uh, 120 kids who are all at the top of their class, someone's not going to be at the top of their class. And so those of us who had not studied science kind of ended up sort of clustered at the bottom. <laughs> it was it was pretty much a struggle. But I actually really kind of legitimately almost failed out of medical school. Like I was really doing quite badly. And I went to visit a dean or maybe he asked me to come visit him. And so I said to him, like, what do I do to like not fail out? And he said, well, I think you just need to slow this down, like get your hands on things. So he recommended that I go work in a lab in the summer between first and second year. 
And so uh, I thought, okay, fine, I'll do whatever you say. And so I called, you know, like 25 different people. Back then, it was actually a call. Like there was barely email. This was like the summer of, of 1992. And and I got like 24 straight no's. Like when they heard my story of this like quasi-humanities major who came from Vassar College, who's like, you know, failing out of medical school, they were like not super excited to have me in the lab. And long story short, I finally found this young assistant professor who was working in, you know, he was a psychiatrist who was working in neurosciences who agreed to take me. And really the truth is like within a week, I had sort of discovered like my passion in life, which was with science. I really fell in love with the lab. I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the whole thing. And the, I liked working with my hands and all that stuff. And, and basically, you know, I sort of went nuts and went back to this dean and I said, I need to go to graduate school. And he said, whoa, slow down, cowboy. Like, let's like do more than two months yeah. in a lab. And so anyway, I ended up taking a year off and had a really good experience. Um, and I kind of came to this fork where I had to decide, you know, was I going to actually do graduate school and gave it some consideration, but, but got a lot MD of- on top of the page. Yeah, so I had my MD. And at that time, you know, where I was a student, you could pretty, I wouldn't say easily, but it wasn't that hard to kind of be able to add to get into the PhD program, whether I could have found funding for that was a different story. But I think I'd gotten sort of enough traction that my mentors said, look, you know, if you want, we'll sponsor you. And I think if you want to stick around and do a PhD, go for it. But, right. you know, I was getting to a point where I was sort of like, uh, you know, I'm in my mid 20, mid to late twenties, and maybe it's just better to go on. Asked a lot of people and specifically asked, like, am I going to be able to do science as an MD only scientist? And most people said, yeah, sure. It's just really going to be the quality of your experience. And so I ended up not doing that. I did my internal medicine residency back at Hopkins and then came to San Francisco 20 years ago, summer of 1998. And I came here to do sort of a combined research and clinical fellowship in cardiology. So that was sort of the long-winded version of how I got to be where I am. And now I would say that, like, you know, Probably one of the more respected, you know, folks in the space of keto cardiology, especially in the tech world that we live in, in San Francisco, right? So it's kind of a cool story to go from, I yeah. guess, a humanities major to not knowing yeah. that he really likes science, that now you know being a leading voice in. In, in science thought leadership, I would say. That's very kind. Look, I mean, in my background was important. I, I think, you know, one of the things I try and tell my kids, actually my younger, my older daughter is a freshman in high school and she get in her high school, they have these electives and her elective, her first trimester was, was improv. And she was super bummed. I was like, that's the greatest thing ever. That couldn't, you probably couldn't design a better skill to have in whatever career you end up having, the ability to be able to have an impromptu conversation off the cuff and like not struggle and be able to, you know, do that is super important. So yeah. I do think my humanities background, maybe not the music, but like being able to write and think critically and stuff, that was all super important for me. Yeah. I think one of the things that is, I think it's interesting for our audience is that most of our listeners are either up to speed on a ketogenic diet mm -hmm. or probably practicing the ketogenic diet or yeah. fasting or some variation of yeah. uh, optimizing metabolism. But I think your background as a cardiologist is especially interesting because yeah. we've had folks in nephrology, folks in internal medicine or with weight management, but not, not, not a lot of folks with cardiology experience. Yeah prescribing and investigating the ketogenic yeah. diet. So I would say that standard medical practice is still low fat diet. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you would talk to a cardiologist, 90% of them would say you're eating high fat. That's crazy. You're going to give your patient a heart attack. Yeah. I'm sure that was probably your background in training. What was my background as a child? I mean, <laughs> so how did you go from yeah. the, I guess the, the status quo or, or the standard uh, recommendations 
of sort of a low fat, high grain, whatever diet to looking at keto as a viable, not just option, but something that's beneficial for these types of patients. I mean, I literally grew up in a home where my dad is, it was and is, remains right, a cardiologist. Okay. Right, and, right, right. You know, at that time, like growing up as a kid in the 70s and the early 80s, I mean, it was pretty clear, like the American Heart Association, all the different, you know, ADA, everything else sort of viewed fat as the evil. Yeah. And and I and that certainly was ingrained in me. And I think it's ingrained in our culture. It's yes. actually difficult to unlearn this concept that fat could be anything other than poison. I mean, that was really the way we were raised. And, and what I... I think what I sort of try and explain to people is that nutrition is one of the rare things, one of the rare examples of of a true zero sum game, right? There is, if you have a certain number of calories that you're going to eat during it during the day, some fraction of those are going to be broken down into the three macronutrient categories. You're either going to be eating protein, carbohydrate, or fat. And so, if you're going to limit your fat intake, and most people kind of have a relatively consistent and moderate protein intake, then by definition, what you're doing is increasing your carbohydrate intake. And so I eat a ton. I mean, I had a ridiculous amount of carbohydrates as a kid. I remember, I mean, I probably had two or three Cokes a day and like Doritos and chips and just like, just ridiculous amount of carbohydrates, which probably were labeled as like heart healthy. Um, I mean, I'm not, that's probably, I'm not even joking. Yeah, it's really so, true, yeah. I mean, I, I even vaguely remember when I got to San Francisco in the, in the early 2000s, like having conversations with friends of mine, a couple, this one endocrinologist, and I remember specifically who worked in the lab that I was doing my postdoc in. And we were talking about, I think it was sort of right in the peak of the Atkins diet craze. And I remember thinking like, that's insane. And like these people are killing themselves. And I remember when Dr. Atkins died and like he died of a heart attack, there was this whole... And I remember sort of having this like almost like I told you so moment. Right. It was really, uh, but again, this is all based on opinion and the absence of any real like strong, robust data, or if there are data, the data are really observational and, and pretty flawed. And I think you know the story really for me begins and ends with the flaws in nutritional epidemiology. And so we'll get there eventually, but, but I think it's really important mm-hmm. to kind of stay humble about what we do and what we don't know. And the reaction for, for me now, having embraced kind of an openness to other nutritional approaches and lifestyles, I don't want to make the same mistake that our predecessors made in assuming that this is the and right way all. forward, yeah. right? I mean, we don't have data yet to support the idea that, that's, say, the ketogenic you know diet is going to improve risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, you know, we have some data, I think, that are pretty good that from Verda that it certainly can moderate the effects of type 2 diabetes. But but I want to be super careful and not like jump to the, making the same mistakes that that people made in the past. But but I got here, well, I mean, the path is actually sort of simple, right? I mean, I, I got interested as for the past 15 years, I've been working in, in a lab. My lab has been, you know, focused on trying to understand basic me- mechanisms of, of metabolism. And, and I think about five or six years ago, I, I got the sort of, I woke up one morning and thought like, gosh, this is really fun. Like, I really love going to work every day. And we get to do, like, it's basically like I'm getting paid to play. And I mean, it was that enjoyable for me. But in terms of impact, I struggled with this idea that like there were probably 30 people in the world who really were paying attention to what we were doing. And the question of sort of what we were going to leave behind really bothered me. So I started to think like, well, how could I, how could we, or how can I start to explore having an impact more than just on these 35 people who care about the work that we're doing in the lab. And so got, got interested in sort of, well, let's think about nutrition. Nutrition is one of these things, you know, we can apply nutrition to, 
to huge numbers of people. Everyone eats. And exactly. Everyone yeah. eats and it's super important. And oh, by the way, you know, if you think about as a practicing cardiologist, if you look at the landscape of how we treat or prevent cardiovascular disease these days, we really, you know, have the sort of standard medicines, procedures, surgery. And I think we're getting to a point now in, especially in, in this country where economic landscape dictates that it's getting harder and harder to justify development of new therapies because of the cost. And you can use examples, you know, my favorite example is the development of these, this class of medicines called PCSK9 inhibitors, which are cholesterol, you know, medicines, which mm-hmm. were developed over the past 15 years. And those drugs have had, I mean, it's probably the best story from sort of concept discovery, biology, all the way through the clinical program best story that I've seen in my career. And yet the drugs are sort of a commercial flop and, and you could make a lot of excuses for that. But for me, the hard, fast reality is that the economic reality of, of today is that it's really hard to justify paying for them. So that's how I sort of got interested. I ended up doing a bunch of advising for companies. I get, and eventually I got introduced to, to Virta, which is, you know, based here in San Francisco and they're applying the ketogenic diet to patients with type two diabetes. And so I've been advising them for two years now. And that's where I really got to know. And that's where I really kind of began to do a deep dive on keto. I think that's uh, an interesting, like full circle journey. And I guess going from yeah, being raised by a cardiologist mm-hmm. who probably was steeped into the dogma of AHA, ADA, saying yeah. that fat was evil to like, okay, being open-minded and kind of, I guess, going through Verda, just reading like, oh, like, let's actually look at all the literature here. And the, the literature for type 2 diabetes is pretty compelling, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I give Steve and Sami uh, and those guys a ton of credit for bringing me on board because at the time – sort of I'm naturally pretty skeptical, but at the time I certainly wasn't like I was no advocate. In fact, you know, I was definitely going into this with eyes wide open and thinking like, all right, well. I'm going to call BS on you guys. No, but I mean, I, look, I mean, the <laughs> truth is like I got introduced to them through Bob Kocher, who's the um, who's a partner at Venrock. He's an investor and okay. I think he led their series A. Yeah. And Bob's a physician and Bob told me when we first met, he said, you're not going to believe the results these guys are having. And he said, and this stuck with me. And I think, you know, he's largely right. He said their results are unparalleled in terms of diabetes treatment or reversal or whatever name you want to call it next to anything other than bariatric surgery. Hmm. And obviously bariatric surgery is not something that you can apply or would want to apply to, to, you know, 80 million people. Right. It's incredibly effective at managing diabetes in, in certain people, but it's not going to be the kind of thing. It's not going to be for every, for everybody, but that stuck with me. And so I went into this thinking, okay, well, this is an interesting approach for diabetes management, but what the hell are we doing to cardiovascular risk on the side? And so it definitely was this like very slow, deliberate and very thoughtful bit by bit, me digging in, learning about the history of keto, going back hundreds of years to, you know, really doing a deep dive on, on their data. Yeah. And that's, you know, continues to this day. I I still, you know, I'm learning so much. It's been really fun. Yeah. Curious to hear a little bit about the cardiovascular side of the story, because obviously cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer of Americans by by far. I think cancer is number two. So I, I think within how keto can apply to cardiovascular disease. There's the cholesterol story. Um, and I think another big biomarker that people care a lot about is calcium artery, yeah. uh, calcium coronary artery uh, scores. Curious to hear about your experience, your or your best practices a- around what are the biomarkers that you care about as a clinician for cardiovascular risk? And sure. how does diet or uh, impact some of those biomarkers? Sure. How do you think about it? Yeah. This this could be like a very long discussion. Yeah. So to just like jump in and interrupt me, uh, and I'll intro- introduce it by saying that I'm a little bit of an anomaly when it comes to you know the low carb 
keto world because of my feelings about cholesterol. So, you know, I have come a long way in understanding the benefits of low carb or of keto in health. And I have uh, hope around what we might eventually demonstrate in terms of cardiovascular health. But I'm not giving up on the so-called cholesterol hypothesis. I, I'm still a firm believer that the cholesterol, whatever form you want to call it, is is a, is a fundamental and important, if not the most important risk factor in developing mm. cardiovascular disease. So want to talk about cholesterol first or calcium or do both or... Um, yeah, I think I think those are probably the two big biomarkers that people talk yeah. about for CVD, right? So yeah. I think we can go one, one at a time, sure. Yeah. So cholesterol for me is, uh, like I said, I mean, I want to be super clear. I do not, I'm not a, of the camp that cholesterol is not important as a card- as a risk factor. That said- Both LDL and HDL, you, you no, still so total. I think we've sort of come to a general understanding that HDL is probably a marker of risk, but not itself contributing to risk. In other words, it's not, it used to be thought that HDL was good cholesterol. So the higher the HDL, that HDL is actually performing some protective mechanism in terms right. of like re- returning cholesterol out of the artery wall. And that was the teaching forever. And in fact, when I was growing up and when I was a medical student, the dogma was, all right, LDL is bad cholesterol, HDL is good cholesterol. That's the one that you like want to get it up as however you can do it, whether it's through exercise, alcohol, or drugs, you want to get HDL up and then don't really pay attention to triglycerides. Like it's just sort of a non-factor. And I think what we've learned largely through the work of my colleagues in the human genetics world and Mendelian randomization and other techniques that they have is that it turns out HDL itself is not causative. HDL is just a marker. So it's not... it doesn't mean that it doesn't confer that if you have a, a low HDL, it doesn't mean your risk your risk is definitely higher than it would be. But getting your HDL to go up doesn't improve your risk at all. And we've now demonstrated that through multiple mechanisms, including, you know, I think three different classes of drugs that have right. all failed. And if anything, yes, they raise the HDL beautifully, but but if anything, not only do they not reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, they they make it worse. Yeah. So we I sort of stick H, HDL aside. Triglycerides is fascinating because these Mendelian randomization studies have now shown that the triglycerides is indeed causal, looks to be causal. And that's fascinating, especially for somebody who's interested in keto, because you know, one of the things that happens in keto is your triglycerides come down almost universally. People yeah. have to see this decrease in triglycerides. So yeah. I think if you're looking at just the sort of basic fasting lipid profile where you get a total cholesterol on an HDL and, and a triglycerides, you know, there are a lot of people out there, including friends of mine who think that that's worthless. I love the idea that we can get information out of anything. And so I, I think it's certainly not the most sophisticated information, but it's actionable. And I think, you know, the number that I pay attention to now in that basic lipid profile is is the non-HDL cholesterol. So total cholesterol minus the HDL. Mm. And that includes most of the sort of atherogenic particles and other things that people pay attention to. So so if you if you're only getting a fasting lipid profile, the number that I care about is is non-HDL. It doesn't mean I don't pay attention to LDL C. I do, but the number that I care about is is non-HDL. And of course I do pay attention to, to triglycerides. There's obviously a wealth of other ways to kind of dig down and drill down into the lipids. And I think, you know, I, I don't we think we'll, a massive we won't have, yeah. we won't do that today, yeah. but, but I think the truth is if you step back and you're honest about the data right now, the data don't support at least in a robust way that any of those measurements add anything to heart outcomes. It doesn't mean that they won't, they might at some point, again, there are arguments among experts, people who are far more expert than I am about which of these markers is more or less predictive. Right. But I think the people that I respect the most seem to think that the data, the information you get out of non-HDL is roughly equivalent to the information you get from ApoB, which is a sort of atherogenic component of, right. of, uh, of lipoprotein. Um, and whether or not that is more or less equivalent to LDL particle 
number is, you know, a debate that I don't think we can have today. Yeah. The other thing that's emerged in the past few years that I was initially skeptical about that seems to be also causative, again, supported by human genetics as well as, you know, epidemiology is LP little a. So when I see a patient for the first time at the basic level, I, I at least get a, you know, fasting lipid profile, paying attention to HDL. I'm now starting to get ApoB more. And in patients who want it, I'll do a particle analysis and then I'm getting LP little a as well. So yeah. that's sort of the cholesterol panel for me. Obviously in some or most people, we're also getting a, you know, mark a HSCRP to look for inflammation as well. So that's sort of the basic kind of risk assessment blood test panel that, that I'll do. And, and we when can you have a keto intervention, typically in my experience, like just on myself and just seeing yeah. folks, you know, people in the community sharing their blood and lipid panels is that you would typically see HDL go up, you would see triglycerides go down, right. and sometimes LDL would go up on keto. Yeah. Um, so, so it'd so, be interesting to hear uh, how you reconcile or integrate that sort of those typical results of someone on a ketogenic diet with your understanding of cardiology yeah. for assessing risk here. There's a tremendous need to be able to kind of really hammer this down and kind yeah. of understand it. And I think the first step is to understand what are the changes. And the second step is to understand what's the impact of the changes. Yeah. Understanding the impact of the changes clinically is going to be a longer investment, right? Yeah. That's going to take longer time. But I think Verda's done a really nice job looking at the changes in their population. They've done it on a population basis and they haven't. And I think there's, it's important to recognize that if you look at the sort of, what are the mean changes in any of these markers across hundreds of people, you'll see things move, but any one individual might have more or less of a change. I want to come back to really talk about what happens because there are people who I think are referred to in the community as, as hyper responders. And I think it's really important to kind of address that because there is a, a subset of people who clearly will have, I think nobody would argue that they, the markers, at least the traditional markers, the way we look at them, go wacky in the wrong direction. Yeah. But I would say on average, if you look at the population, what, what Verda has published, and I think, and I be believe that, believe it, data I think are really robust, is that what you see is, a, as you said, an increase in HDL, decrease in triglycerides, a slight increase, about 10% increase in LDLC, but no change in ApoB. And if you do a particle analysis, it looks like the what you see is an increase in, so, in the so-called pattern A. So you see an increase in these big, uh, fluffy LDL particles and a decrease in the small particles, which according, again, to my, you know, lipid colleagues like Ron Krauss and others, those are the the more atherogenic particles. Right. So it looks as if the hint is that what you're seeing is a change, again, on a population basis, you're seeing a change that seems neutral at worst, but but maybe even protective in terms of reducing atherogenic li lipoproteins. So that that's something I think that's comforting on a population basis. So what do you do with this individual? So you have a patient who comes to see you in, in the office, they say, and I have a lot of them, right? And they say, I went on keto and my LDL oh, particle, spiked, yeah. right? My LDL particle number went from whatever, 600 to 1200 and uh, my APOB doubled, you know, whatever it is. And so what do you do with, with that? And that to me is the, you know, important question in, the, in this field. And what I tell people is you have four choices, right? Basically you come to me, Jeff, and you say, my cholesterol went wackadoodle when I went on keto and I say, all right, Jeff, you got four choices. And so your first choice is ignore it, right? Um, <laughs> there are people out there who are able to talk themselves into thinking this is meaningless. There are people out there who are able to say, okay, well, I have a calcium. We'll come back to calcium in a second, but yeah. they're, they're willing to say, all right, I have a calcium score of zero. I'm 55 years old. And so that's comforting. And so I'm just not going to ignore it, but I'm going to set it aside and maybe we'll repeat the calcium score again in a few years, but, but I'm going to like put it in a drawer. Yeah. So option one is ignore it or like put it away for a little while. Option two is quit keto, right? No one wants to do that. At least I shouldn't say no one. Most people 
who go on keto and like it don't want to stop. They yeah. they like the effect. They like how they feel. They like the effect. They like the weight loss. They like the meta- other metabolic benefits. So, but it's always an option. Option three is to make a shift in the ratio of your saturated fat to monounsaturated fat intake. And I think that to me is sort of like the simplest and most attractive option. It would be hard to do if you were a carnivore, but but I don't think, but I think it would be relatively easy to do otherwise. And so, you know, again, because on keto, because nutrition is zero sum, on keto, you have to increase your fat intake way above what we're all used to and way above what we were all sort of ingrained and in condition to think is normal. You're going to have to drive those fats from other sources, probably more plant-based sources. Yeah, nuts, avocados, avocados, olives, olive oil, um, you know, fish, um, you know, really rich in omega-3s and things like that, as opposed to eating, you know, fatty steak or pork and stuff all day long. So that's the third option. The fourth option, which I think, you know, we could also spend like 40 hours talking about, but I don't want to dismiss it. It's just funny how the world has sort of come to see this as evil. The fourth option is to take a cholesterol lowering medicine. And I know it seems like craziness to so many people. It's so funny how like there's this like wild skepticism about this, but this stands specifically as a class of medications are probably the best studied medication in the history of pharmaceuticals, right? I mean, there's probably never been a better studied drug class. They've been around since the late 1980s. And arguably, you know, several hundred thousand patients have gone into large randomized controlled trials with outcomes. And so is there potentially some bias? Of course, you know, are there side effects? Probably, but they're really powerful medications. And I think, you know, I'm fond of saying, while they certainly have effects on lipids and lipoproteins and other things, they're biggest effect is that they reduce your risk of having a heart attack. So I reserve that for people who are, you know, again, you're making trade-offs all the time in medicine. It's one of the things you learn early on is you're constantly going to make trade-offs. So if somebody comes to me and says, I love this keto thing, I'm really worried about my cholesterol, I don't want to change the way I want to eat, then an option is to to take a statin. Yeah, Yeah, which is interesting. I don't want to get too derailed with statins, but it seems like it's one of the areas in the low-carb keto community where it's like, oh, statins, a lot of the side effects. I mean, how do we still man that argument? It's that the research might be biased, like the raw data has never been fully published. And um, while there are small cases where it seemed like there was positive effects, it was just like kind of, I guess, average out in the population size. There's a lot of people with side effects with like muscle pains and all that. Yeah. It would be kind of the steel man way of presenting yeah. like why statins aren't that great. And like the original inventor of statins, I believe a Japanese scientist ended up saying that he didn't believe in statins anymore. Yeah. So I guess if that's a steel man argument, how do you counter the steel man argument of? Yeah, I, I guess I should say like the other thing to me that's so fascinating is like how this Venn diagram circles of like the low carb keto community and statin skepticism, skepticism, how there's like so much overlap yeah. between the two of them. And it's something I talk about and think about a lot. And I'm, I'm not sure I have a very good explanation. There are lots of theories, but forget that for a sec. So, you know, again, short of like vast conspiracies involving just countless hundreds of thousands of people and, you know, academic institutions, you know, all the, it would have to be like a tremendous bias. I think I'm less willing to buy into that. So I believe the data in general sort of at face value are legitimate and real. Are there examples where, you know, people cook things and all this other, of course, but I mean, we're talking about a huge data set with multiple different, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine different pharmaceutical companies, hundreds of different academic investigators. So it'd have to be like a really vast conspiracy. In addition, statins are now all completely generic. So like there's no financial like 
conspiracy. I mean, if there were con- conspiracy 20 years ago, then that conspiracy is long over. It's ended. Now, the economic and, rent is yeah, now I mean, I think gone. That's gone. Right? So yeah. I think where things get really complicated and where like I have genuine disagreements, healthy and thoughtful disagreements with even colleagues of mine is over the differences between primary and secondary prevention. So I don't know, you know, how much people pay attention to that, but, but, but the large sort of the bulk of statin data that's been published has been published in what we call secondary prevention population. So people who've had a heart attack Mm. or have the equivalent of coronary artery disease get randomized statin or placebo. And then, you know, you follow them for X number of years, you look at the difference in in outcomes. And, and I think there's very little debate, even among the most skeptical statin skeptics, that statins are effective in secondary prevention. So then the question, and and I think, you know, where things have gotten more complicated is in primary prevention. So somebody like you or me who's never had a heart attack may have risk of of having a heart attack. So what's the role of statins in preventing our first heart attack? And because the risk of heart attack in anyone in the primary prevention world is lower by definition, it's harder to design trials. You have to enroll bigger populations and you got to Make the trials profile might be the higher. Trials have to yeah. last longer. So I think the um, you know the, I will be the first to admit that the quality of the data in the primary primary prevention population is is worse. But does that mean, and is there any biological plausible explanation for why you know let's just say I have a heart attack tomorrow. So if we're, today I'm in the primary prevention population. Tomorrow I'm in the secondary prevention population. Why would there be any difference in sort of the ability of, of the statin to reduce my risk? tomorrow versus today. So I think it's it's biologically difficult to understand other than just the sort of basic statistics that the event rate's going to be higher in the secondary pre- prevention population. So therefore, it's easier to design trials uh, that are properly powered. So but it, it, again, you sort of get into this yeah, thing. Yeah, there's a nuance there. Yeah. I understand the subtlety, so yeah. I think, you know, from my standpoint, again, I, I think the data are relatively incontrovertible at statins prevent heart attacks. Do they prevent them entirely through reduction of LDL cholesterol? Absolutely not. And I think, you know, again, that's part of the reason why I like when people refer to statins as heart attack prevention pills and not cholesterol pills, because they probably have a lot of other pleiotropic effects, including effects on, you know, inflammation in the, in the vessel wall, or there are people who think they're plaque stabilizers. There are some, there was a time in the 1990s where people thought the statins were Prevent, prevented against sudden cardiac death, that they were stabilizing from an arrhythmia standpoint. So it's a really complicated and kind of energized and sometimes religious discussion. Yeah. And I don't want to like, piss people off, but I think I will say this. I came to the low-carb keto thing with a t- tremendous amount of skepticism. And over the past five years, I've grown to embrace it and now really spend my life kind of looking at it. with it. Yeah. And so I just ask people to have the same open-mindedness when they approach the cholesterol question, because I think the data there are really strong and compelling. So I, I'm not going to change anyone's mind, and I certainly am never going to push anyone to take a pill they don't want to take. So we can talk about side effects, and I think side effects are super interesting when it comes to statins. And you know, my take on it is that we don't really have sufficient data today to tell you anything other than the one kind of sort of consensus agreed upon side effect is that you increase your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. You sort of mm-hmm. dysregulate your your insulin glucose homeostasis to some degree by taking a statin. Everything else, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but everything else has not been borne out. And partly it's been the way that the trials were designed. So most of these big statin trials were designed with a run-in period. So, so if you and I get randomized to one of these big statin trials, we both will 
let's say you get randomized to placebo, uh-huh. I get randomized to statin. We're both going to take uh, statin for three or four weeks before we start. And if you develop any side effects, mm. you're out of the study. Mm. So in some ways, what they did was sort of flush out all the people who were going to have any side effects. Right. And so that's why when you look at the data, there isn't really like ever a difference between placebo and statin when it comes to to side effects. Right. And I think all out, that's right. sort of a little bit of a false. So I, I think there are a couple of studies that are ongoing now that should begin to answer the question of like, what is the true incidence of say, you know, muscle related side effects, which right. is the most common thing I hear about. Yeah. The cognitive stuff will also sort of always bother people. You know, I don't, I don't know how we're going to answer that one, but those are sort of the main ones. But everything we do, as I said before, in medicine is a trade-off. And so it's just about having this conversation about what's, what are the risks of this? What are the risks of this? And, you know, how do you want to proceed? Yeah, no, I think that's a, you know, a well-nuanced position there. And I don't want to forget about talking about calcium. So yeah. let's touch on calcium. So again, I think if you don't think LDL or HDL or cholesterol is a big marker, I think folks in the low-carb keto community would say that calcium is the, yeah. is the biomarker of choice. We should look at calcium. Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Um, obviously, it, it's, it could be useful, right? Yeah, so calcium, so coronary artery calcium, so the amount of, so it was, I think, first seen on chest x-rays and then this guy i think his name is actually dr agustin then if you get a calcium score you're it'll come out in agustin units hmm. um he sort of figured out a way to quantify the amount of calcium and it, it was it's been studied for a long time as an epidemiological marker for cardiovascular risk so right. more calcium you have in your arteries the higher your risk and the reason for that is that for reasons that we don't totally understand as plaque progresses it gets calcified right and you can see that on an x-ray so the story with calcium is very much like the story with a lot of things for me like i started off as a skeptic in fact i remember getting patients coming to see me in the office with a calcium scan and they were scared because their calcium score was super high and i remember thinking gosh i wish i never had this and for the longest time i never ordered one i only saw them sort of from patients who were referred to see me in the office and I never could understand why anyone would order them. And I think it's over again over the past five years, probably independent from anything having to do with nutrition, that I've started to appreciate that they're actually very useful in helping us define risk. And and that's my job as a preventive cardiologist. My job is to help define what's your risk as best we can, what's your risk of having a heart attack. So I've started to use them a lot more. I tend to use them in two main areas so that the Amazing thing is that like there was tons of skepticism about calcium scans in the cardiology community, so much so that I think even to this day, they're not reimbursed by mm-hmm. any commercial payer and they're not re- re- reimbursed by Medicare. So that's a whole different story. You can actually talk about the economics of how, <laughs> how that's actually why they're so cheap. But if you order one today, you have to, patient has to pay out of pocket because it was considered to be uh scientific or research. So remarkably, even just now two months ago, the American Heart Association published their new set of guidelines. And in, in, in that set of guidelines, they they included for the first time ever, they included calcium score as, as another way to assess risk. And, yeah. and that's the first time that's ever happened. And so I think, you know, we're going to see a lot more calcium score. So when do I use them? So I use them in the sort of traditional standard kind of, let's say you take a patient with intermediate risk. So we bucket risk in Cardiology, we bucket risk as being, you know, like everything else in medicine, low, medium, and high. And we do that based on a calculation of 10-year risk of having a heart attack. And we low is less than 10%, intermediate is 10 to 20, and, and high is above 20. And so the traditional way to use calcium is to say, take somebody who's kind of intermediate or low intermediate or even high low. So somebody in the sort of 7 to 15% range. Mm-hmm. 
and do a calcium score on them. And you can help make a decision about whether or not you want to be a little bit more aggressive in, prevent, in prevention. I still do that. But the two places I really use calcium score, one is in older people who have wacky lipids, who either don't want to or have had a bad trouble, had a bad problem with taking statins or other cholesterol medications. Mm-hmm. So we've learned a lot about the value of a calcium score of zero. And while a calcium score of zero is not 100% guaranteed, you're never going to have a heart attack, especially in older people where you'd expect that if they have plaque, that by the time you get to be 60, 65, 70, 75, that that plaque would be calcified. So a calcium score of 70 in an older person is extremely reassuring. So the classic example is you take somebody who's got like super high LDL cholesterol, say 250, 70 year old man, and they have a calcium score of zero. I'm comfortable now stopping the statin in that patient if that's what that patient wants to do. Again, that's relatively controversial and certainly not guideline driven today, but I use calcium a calcium scan score of zero in an older group of people to help have comfort over not treating. Yeah. The other place I use it is in younger people where, you know, a 40-year-old should have no calcium because if you look at the population curves, you'd expect to have no calcium up until I think, you know, 40, 41. So right. if somebody comes in and they've got other risk factors, let's say they've got a strong family history and their, you know, numbers are all pretty wacky and they want to know, well, Guidelines don't say that I should start prevention therapies until I'm 40. I shouldn't even be doing any of this stuff until I'm 40. What do I do? I'm 38 years old. My dad died of a heart attack. My uncle, my brother, da, 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 da. I'll do a calcium scan in in that person. And, and if they have calcium, that to me is very telling. And that sort of lights the sort of fire that, hey, look, we want to be super aggressive. However we decide to approach prevention, whether that's, you know, nu- nutrition or lifestyle medication or something else. Let's let's be super aggressive. Yeah, I think it's super helpful. That's like a good sort of one-on-one on calcium for our listeners here. Hey, listeners, hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If you're interested in trying the Keto Breath Sensor from Dr. Weiss, his team is kind enough to offer our listeners 15% off until May 31st, 2019. It's quite a nifty device to help you stay on track with the ketogenic diet. Visit getketo.com dot com slash hvmn to take advantage of the deal the link is also in the show notes now back to the program so i want to move topics to keto the the new venture here so clinical practice research and started advising at verda got really deep into the keto space what inspired you to team up the 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 team here and and launch keto i mean congrats on the launch you're just closing the pre-sales shortly right it's been crazy and super fun you know like i said earlier I, i kind of got to this point in my career where i really wanted to think about impacting more people and got sort of turned on to this you know what's going on at Verta and was really taken by by the results that they've had. Concomitant with that, I think over the past three or four years, I've, I've become personally really fascinated with the power of trying to find ways to modulate human behavior to impact human health. And again, it comes back to this sort of economic reality that we're not going to be able to use, treat 80 million people with metabolic disease, whatever, however many million people with NAFLD or NASH or you know all these other things. We're not going to be able to treat them all with like expensive drugs and devices and surgeries. So how can we enable people to be able to make the changes in their lives that they want to make, but they haven't been able to? And it comes back to this idea that people come to see me in the office and they say consistently, you know, Ethan, I am fat and I want to lose weight. And my response to them over the 25 years I've been seeing patients has always been the same, which is, okay, well, just eat less and exercise more, right? Which is basically like the equivalent of me just like, punching them in the face because it's they come back you know six I'm months later nothing's to, changed I'm trying that. 
or yeah. like, it's like, yeah, be smarter. It's like, so yeah, how, how do we, you know, sort of was stuck with this idea of like, how do we, people want to do this. There's no doubt in my mind that people want, they do not want to feel the way they feel or the with the way they felt. So I think what we were missing were the, to the tools to be able to enable individual people to be able to make the changes they want to make in their lives. And so I sort of got fascinated with this sort of like, how do we use how can we modulate human behavior? And part of it came from this reality of having teenage daughters. And like, I got stuck on this idea. I remember having this like awakening a few years ago and my, my daughter, my now 15 year old daughter first got Snapchat. And I remember like watching like the just incredible, incredible addiction that she had to this platform and thinking like, I've seen this before. Like when I was a resident in Hopkins and I was taking care of like countless numbers of heroin addicts, I'm seeing the same behaviors in my <laughs> daughter, my teenage daughter, yeah. who's trying to like get to her device to be able to, you know, interact with her friends that I saw in these people who were trying to get, you know, heroin to be able to, to satisfy their addiction. And I think it wasn't an accident this time, right? Like this was engineered addiction. I think one of the things that we've learned now, you know, especially today in 2019, is that Silicon Valley has done a spectacular job over the past 20 years of learning how to engineer addiction. It's yeah. the basis of how a lot of these companies have come to exist. Yeah. And and so could we harness the power of that for something good? And again, I don't want to say that there's nothing good about Facebook or all this. And I love Twitter and stuff. So I do think there's good in what's what Silicon Valley has done or what we've done in, yeah. in the past. But could we turn it towards something that we haven't yet turned it to? Specifically, could we turn it towards trying to engineer positive addictions? Could we try and get people to help, you know, relearn how to live their lives? And so a couple of years ago, I, I got introduced to Ray Wu, you know, my my one of my two co-founders at Keto. And he had, you know, just sold his company and he and Leanne, our third co-founder, were, were working on something else. And we started going out to lunch and talking about this very issue and, and like did, did like a really deep dive on on the behavioral economics and, and kind of thought like, gosh, it'd be fun to do something together. And I remember we would have these lunches over the course of months and we're always kind of coming back to this idea, like, how can we, how can we do something? We just could never find the right hook. We could never write, we could never find the right thing that would help that you could give people the feedback that they needed to be able to make the changes they needed to kind of relearn. And I mean, we, we thought of everything. I won't bore you with the details, but, but eventually kind of the two circles converged, you know, sort of this idea that, Hey, look, there's this super powerful intervention that I'm watching unfold at Verda. At Verda, at least they're applying that to people who are sort of on the sicker end of the spectrum and the amount of human capital that they deploy to, to treat these people is is pretty intense and therefore also pretty expensive. So it's not it's not really as accessible to a, to an average person. Again, their intervention is spectacular. But if you just take an average person who's non-diabetic, it's harder to access. And I think what I heard over and over again, what I saw was that the benefits of keto are, are there for a lot of people that a lot of people had a really hard time doing it. Yeah. And so we sort of settled on this idea that, gosh, you know, one of the things that's special and unique about, about keto that's different from all other diets, or I shouldn't say all, but most other diets is that it gives you this biomarker that you can follow over time um, when you do it. And, and that can help you kind of gauge your level of success. And it really helps to uh, enable adher adherence. And so, and that biomarker obviously is following your ketone levels. And so we, you know, did a kind of a dive on, on sort of how do you measure ketones? And obviously, you know, your listeners are going to know that you can measure ketones, blood, uh, blood, urine, yeah, and breath. And actually the, the publications go back now a hundred years. There were publications describing 
sort of gold standard measurements of blood, urine, and breath. And the performance of all three of them has always been about the same in terms of measure, you know, sort of assessing ketosis. It turns out that there haven't been very good devices to measure acetone and breath. So acetone, yes, your readers probably know the pathway, right? So we'll back up and we'll say that acetoacetate is broken down into beta hydroxybutyrate and acetone, and uh, acetoacetate is two acetyl-CoA. So, so well, like it's BHB to acetoacetate to acetyl-CoA, right? So acetoacetate to BHB. Well, I guess they, they can they can interconvert for yes. sure. So, and in fact, it explains the reason why if you take ketone salt ester, if you take you know your yeah. product, that your acetone your acetone levels go up, right? Um, which is a fun experiment. Um, to play around with. Yeah, we should should definitely. uh, But I think we sort of have some anecdotes that that actually does happen. But in any case, um, the performance, you know, is pretty, pretty good. But the problem was that sort of the the quality of the the tools to measure it were were not very good. And they certainly weren't portable. So, um, you know, Ray and I and Leanne kind of thought about different ways to tackle this. And basically, um, you know, I won't kind of bore you with all the details, but but we stumbled onto some some early technology that that we were able to use in a pilot, um, actually technology that you can buy on Amazon. Um, and it confirmed to us that that this could work. Um, and so we set about trying to kind of um, build a device that people could carry around and use all the time. And basically it would replace, you know, measuring your blood or, or measuring your urine. And so that was the story of how keto was born. Yeah, and it's actually really funny because that was part of my own personal journey experiment with the ketogenic diet probably three, four years ago now where you start getting onto the diet, you want to measure your outcome, you want to track your progress. And it's right. like, okay, you can either stab yourself, you can use these pee sticks or there's breath meters. And I remember that it's it was intimidating at first for me to do finger sticks. Yeah. Because it's like, it's it's not painful but it is it, it i mean it is a pinch it is annoying you got to stab yourself you got to get a little bead of blood out and you got to measure yourself so it was always interesting to me can you make it easier for people to just measure yeah. the ketone levels so i mean here's get the trade off because a lot of the i would say the clinical research is focused on blood ketone levels yeah. how did you come across thinking okay Breath acetone is going to be an equally valuable marker yeah. for our customers, for our for our, our population, or is it an engineering trade-off where you guys thought, okay, finger sticks is only for kind of crazy hardcore people. Yeah. Either you have diabetes or you're like a weird biohacker who's down to stab themselves. Yeah. Uh, and breath is going to be just a lot more easy for people. So, or do you see this not as a trade-off where you think acetone can actually be more efficient as a marker for ketosis? So I've tested myself, I don't know, thousands of times yeah. over the past few months. And I'll say that from my own personal experience, I get as much or more information from our device as I do from blood. The con- concordance or discordance of those measurements is probably more dependent on biology than on the performance of the sensors. I'll, I'll say that, um, I won't mention any of them by name, but but some of the commercial blood meters are as bad as any device I've ever used and basically just short of a random number generator. <laughs> I haven't used urine strips too much, but my you know sort of experience is that they're also not very accurate. And so look, from my perspective, you hit on this idea that's not like super painful, but it's enough of a negative stimulus that it sort of makes you not want to do it. Right. The other reality is that those strips are expensive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, depending on where you get them and which one you use, they can be really expensive. So there is a barrier to kind of doing it regularly. And I, I think for that reason, 
a lot of people, except for like the hardest core biohackers, are not doing it. And certainly is a barrier to mass adaptation on a sort of broad consumer basis, right? If you're thinking, you know, five years or however many years into the future, hey, look, keto could be like something that my grandmother could do. It's hard to imagine. Like it's here's an example. We've been testing everyone we can get our hands on has been helping us test these devices, including my children. <laughs> I've not to this day yet made them prick their finger. I've thought about it a few times, but but I'm just not going to, they, 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 they wouldn't do it. Right. Um, and like you say, it's not like the, the most painful thing in the world, but they're just not going to do that. Right. So I think it is just enough of a barrier. So we were set on this idea, like what we're trying to do is enable behavior change. So part of the behavioral science suggests that in order to do that, you have to make things fun and pleasant and you have to make people feel good. Yeah. And so even, you know, subconsciously, just this like association you get, I know you probably get it too. Like I get this like dread when I go to check my blood, <laughs> even though I've done it 10,000 times, yeah. I just still, I'm like, oh, I really don't want to do that. Right. And so I think the same is true for urine, right? You just, we have this like association of urine as being dirty, right? Just walk around here in the tenderloin, you'll get this like idea, <laughs> like urine is not something like you want to bathe in. So yeah. I think we knew that if we could pull it off from an engineering standpoint, that breath was going to be optimal yeah. from a behavioral standpoint. Yeah. So the question was, could we make a sensor that would be, or could we develop a sensor that would be accurate enough? And so then the question is accurate enough for what purpose? So the way I look at it is number one, we're trying to make a consumer device that helps people, again, make changes in their life to achieve whatever goals they want, whether it's weight loss or optimizing their metabolic health or whatever, feeling better, whatever it is. Yeah. But basically, how can we help people adopt this lifestyle? And so that's number one. And I think, you know, so that was our first goal was let's make a device that's good enough for that. And secondarily, it would be great to be able to satisfy you. Like it would be great to be able to satisfy Peter Atia yeah. and other people who are going to clearly be comparing, you know, our device to every other device out there. And obviously that's the thing that like keeps us a little bit up at night. Like we're a little, you know, I would say scared is the wrong word, but we're interested in sort of how people see this device at that level. But I think optimistic again, and partly because... Because it's cheap and because there's no barrier to use it, you can use it as many times as you want during the day, we're going to get a much richer data set. Yeah. And so I think what we'll learn is that some of the differences that you may see between, say, two assays are probably more a function of biology than they are of the assay of the assay or the sensor itself. So, yeah. But that's something we're super excited to learn. And going forward, I think, you know, we're, we want to, as a company, we want to invest in like in the science and actually doing doing the studies to say, all right, well, let's see how it compares. Yeah, no, I think that's like exciting for me because I think when I went on the journey, like the first thing I used was a breath meter, but then I didn't know how to compare like in a random acetone level right. to what the clinical studies will show, which is blood BHB. Right. And I think that you know, I saw some of your preliminary data where um, you're starting to somehow map that number in, yeah. in a way that could be actually translatable. And yeah. I very much can re-echo your experience around some of the devices you know, a certain brand that comes to mind that markets like a cheaper ship is just like yeah. really, really inconsistent for us. Where it's just like almost, yeah, like a kind of a random, random number generator. And if you're demonstrating something like an exogenous ketone where you expect to see some changes, then it's like, yeah, it's like doing, you know, random numbers. It's like very, very embarrassing when you're like, uh, <laughs> this well, meter's not really disappointing working. It's disappointing because I think, and again, it's something we think about a lot. Like people put trust in you. And again, I'm not saying that that people are fraudulent, that they're going out there to try and, you know, trick people. Yeah. But you want to be able to trust the number that you're getting. I mean, you don't want, you. we don't want to prey on people. So it's disappointing that I think there are these devices out there, a lot of them. It's not just in our space, but they're in, probably in a lot of spaces. It just makes you think like, 
we should have a healthy de- amount of skepticism about these numbers we're getting that we see as ground truth, but they're not. Yeah. And so then the question is, well, what is ground truth? And again, for me, I go back to the science. So the science, you know, is if you take gold standard assays for all three, they perform the same. So that tells you that if you can develop an, an assay that's good, and by the way, doing this with breath is no simple feat, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into this measurement. Some of which we understand, a lot of which we probably still don't understand. Yeah. So it's going to be a great learning process for us going forward. But I think so far, I mean, again, for the time frame that we did all this in, we're really happy. Yeah. Can you walk us through some of the engineering and, and some of the sensor technology behind, yeah. behind the device to be helpful to, or interesting? I yeah. Think, I mean, so it's an, a fascinating story. And basically, I'll try and tell it quickly. So I kind of mentioned that there was this sort of existing technology. If you go online and you Google, like, how do you measure breath acetone? You'll see stories that people have been using kind of old, kind of early versions of consumer alcohol breathalyzers yeah. to measure acetone. And and the reality is what people figured out is that these early sensors, in even in police breathalyzers back in the 1970s, were not specific for ethanol as a volatile organic compound, that they were nonspecific and they could detect any volatile organic. So I've heard stories that may or may not be true that people in the 1970s and 80s on Atkins or keto would get pulled over and get arrested for drunk driving when they hadn't had <laughs> anything to drink because they'd blow into that breathalyzer. That's so, funny. so when we kind of started to get serious about doing this, we, we actually bought, I, th- I probably personally bought every alcohol breathalyzer that is sold on Amazon um, and tested them all. And we saw, yeah, absolutely, this pattern is true that these early cheap ones, it has to be a cheap one. It had to be like a $10 or $15 one, which sounded so strange. But that's because the new ones were engineered to be specific for ethanol. And so these early ones, if you blew into it and you were in ketosis, you the thing would go off and it would start like beeping and going crazy. And so it turns out that Ray, my partner and co-founder, his family's originally from Taiwan and his uncle is there and it works in manufacturing. And he had this contact, this group of people who were developing an alcohol, consumer alcohol breathalyzer for Asia. And they had one of these early sensors for whatever reason. So they sent it to us, we blew into it and lo and behold, we could detect acetone. So we thought, oh, well, this could be like a fun go-to-market thing for us just as a V1. Yeah. Well, to make a long story short, it would have worked fine, but we were able, the sensor the center company that was providing them the sensor had a sensor that was actually, they had been developing specifically for acetone, just coincidentally. So we were able to swap the sensor and not have to restart the whole engineer, the whole you know, sort of manufacturing right. process. And these sensors are, I mean, you can use whatever fancy terminology you want, but these are like incredibly, incredibly sophisticated nanosensors. And I don't, I'm not a physicist, I'm not an engineer, so I'm not gonna try and like explain how the whole thing works, but basically as acetone binds to it, it changes the electrical conductivity of it, and that's basically how they work. Yeah. And um, so we sort of stumbled into this like existing acetone sensor and we're able to kind of get this thing up and going. So for the past three or four months, what we've been doing is trying to understand this beast and, you know, trying to figure out what it means and how to calibrate it. And, you know, we've spent a lot of time working on it. And I think we're pretty satisfied with, with where we are today. Yeah. We actually sent me a screenshot of some of uh, Peter Atia's like testing data, so mm. which is pretty interesting to see how yeah. the different measures yeah. found, like, you know, caught up with the different brands yeah. of like blood sensors and all that. So it is interesting to see that from what I saw that your meter is quite sensitive and, and quite consistent, which is good to see. Yeah. And he has, a. I mean, Peter has, has like a 
early, early version of our, of our device. So I actually just sent him a new one. He's, um, he's in one of his like one week keto, one week fast, right, one week right, keto right. sandwich things. And so I think he's just starting the fast this week. So his numbers are going to go sky high, but I, I mailed him a new device just to kind of see. And so we'll, we'll, at the end of the three weeks, we'll end up like crunching all the raw data. Yeah. I promised him we'd send him the raw data and kind of see what things look like. So it'll be a kind of fun and of one experiment for, um, and Peter's, you know, smart, one of the smartest people I've, I've gotten to know. And so it'll be fun to see what that looks like. So to give our consumers a, a little bit of a preview of how this would work. So you get, uh, you breathe into the meter, the keto yeah. meter, and you'll get a score from zero to what, 10? And yeah, that... I mean, it's a work in progress. I hate to, uh, right now zero to 10. I yeah. think we're, we're sort of settled on eight. It's a trade-off, right? I mean, we want people to feel good. We want to, again, we want to optimize for the behavior, but we also want to, people to feel good and confident about the actual reading. Right. And so it's a, it's a, we're sort of going back and forth about what the number is, but I think, you know, the current, as of today, it's, it's eight. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So I can see the engineering trade-off where I think for the consumer that's looking to lose weight, you just mm. need to know if you're in ketosis or not, kind of like almost like a binary yep. almost, but for someone who is you know trying to maybe be a biohacker right. or understand their biomarkers a little bit more with more fidelity yeah. maybe you'd want some nuance in some way to translate that to a blood bhp marker yeah. or something right yeah, absolutely and and what's interesting is there's probably more than you'd think on the consumer side i i would have thought you know maybe it is just a binary thing or maybe right. it would be three categories for just an average consumer who wants to lose weight right but the truth is like this gamification that happens is so ridiculously powerful yeah. and people get obsessed with wanting their scores to go up. Yep. And, you know, I know there are people out there who say, don't chase, don't chase the ketones, you know, all this stuff. But the truth is like, that's the hook. I mean, that is the Snapchat equivalent. Like that's what, if you can get people to focus on trying to get that number to go up and not focus on their scale and not by definition, what they're doing to get that number to go up is going to be super, is going to be productive for right. them. So that's what we've seen. And so you have to give people a little bit of that reward that they have to get that dopamine surge. So they, yeah. have, they, they want to win. And so we're working on all kinds of, you know, like ideas around, you know, group <laughs> chat and leaderboards and challenges and uh, other ways to kind of really take advantage of our natural kind of in inclination as human beings to want to compete with one another I, and I, to win. I, I know that personally. I mean, I think we've done keto challenges just in, in the group in, in the past. I know yeah. Zilla was in on one of the challenges with me where, yeah, we would do two finger sticks twice a day, uh, one in the morning, one in the evening, yeah. and we'd have to go above a certain number and we'd ratchet what it number? up. What number? I think the first week was like above 0 0.5, second right. week was above 0 0.8, and the yeah. third week was above like 1.0. Yeah. And every time that you would go under your score, we would put like $10 into a pot. Right. And, and, oh, that's cool. And then and, and go from there. And it was just like a fun challenge where, yes, like you end up ketone chasing, which probably isn't like the, necessarily the goal for you, but it's like, it's an right. actual way to maintain motivation and it's a fun way to compete. In, it in, keeps in, people engaged. Yeah. And the other thing that it does, you know, again, we're seeing this kind of in, in our, you know, we have these alpha and beta testers who are out there, yeah. you know, using our, our, our thing in the real world. And the other key element that we haven't talked about is the social support. And, yeah. and that, that to me is like one of the critical elements that looks, if you look across any nutritional intervention, if you want to predict success, 
having support, whether that's in the form of a health coach or some other professional or a peer or a friend or a relative, that's really important. And so what we're seeing now is that like the people who do the best are the people who exist in these groups where there's a ton yeah. of support. Yeah. So if somebody's new that and they're just getting started, there's a whole group of people there to say, hey, look, don't worry about this. Or if you have this side effect, don't worry, you know, we'll help you do this. And don't forget not to eat too much protein. Don't forget you yeah. really need to, you know, work on. Yeah. So the, and then you get on top of that, you layer on top, like a little bit of competitiveness. Like my wife, has just started in the past week. She finally said to me, Ethan, I'm going to, I feel like I should try this. <laughs> and I mean, she's naturally a pretty competitive person. Yeah. And and she ended up, we have this group there. I think there are nine of us who are all friends. And she ended up at the top of the leaderboard. And right now the current version of the app sends a push notification to everybody in the group when there's a new leader. <laughs> and so last night she ended up on top and like she was gloating and telling everyone like, you know, check out the new leader and stuff. So she was pretty excited. Yeah. So I know you've been eating keto for the last couple of years now, yeah. right? Uh, no, no, no. I started about a year ago. Okay. Yeah. So I think it'd be helpful just to give a sense, you know, what does your typical meal look like? Yeah. Is it, are you heavily food meal prepping? Uh, yeah. You know, when you go out, how do you how do you deal with ordering yeah. keto? On, uh, those are great questions. So I've been doing 16-8 for the past like five years okay. and I the still do that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I find that now doing keto, that's just like a incredible much easier. Not that I ever struggled too much. I mean, I would occasionally get a little bit hungry around yeah. 11, but <clears throat> whatever anyone says about keto, about whatever potential metabolic or energy benefits it has, it's hard as an anecdote and a one to not say that it, it reduces hunger. Like I just, I'm not hungry. Um, <laughs> I'm certain never hungry in the afternoon, but I find myself less hungry in the morning. So yeah. I mostly don't eat breakfast. I do make myself lunch every day. And I, it's the first time I've ever done that in my life. Like even when I was a kid, my mom would do my lunch or I'd buy lunch at school. And I, I just never did that. And that's, that's a big deal. I mean, I think, you know, the fact is what I'm making when I, you know, get up in the morning is a salad and I'm putting in that salad, some mix of, you know, greens, vegetables. Um, I'm putting, you know, cheese, some nut, macadamia, walnut, whatever it is. I'm putting a protein, you know, whether that's, you know, salmon or, you know, chicken thighs or whatever it is in there on, on, on top, um, and an avocado almost every day. And then I keep bottles of olive oil in my office. That's and so I just, probably trenching that with oil, I just right? dump it on there yeah. and, and I love it. And I, you know, the truth is I've been eating this way for almost a year and I, I really don't, I'm not bored. And now like I'm making salads for my wife and my kids. Um, so I need to figure out a way to like optimize the production line a little bit like because it definitely is you know it's 15 or 20 minutes every morning but it's a fun 15 20 minutes i love love to cook so that's my i only eat two meals a day so that's right. one and then at dinner again i cook i've always cooked more than my wife has and i've always cooked some but i've gone from i would say maybe making 20 to 25 percent of my meals on a weekly basis to making 80 to 85, maybe even sometimes 90%. Yeah. So I'm making dinner most nights. And, you know, again, there it's whatever protein, right? You know, across the spectrum. My younger daughter is vegetarian, so it's a little bit complicated. Sometimes we'll make her something else. But, you know, it's going to be whatever meat, you know, fish, seafood, all the way up to, you know, pork or lamb. Or Last night we had lamb burgers and, um, and then some roasted vegetable on the side. And, and then at night, my treat before I, you know, cut myself off at eight o'clock is, is I'll have a couple squares of dark chocolate and, nice. and I, and I drink, I, I have two glasses of wine, usually two glasses of wine a, a night, I would say kind of 
it's unusual if I don't have two. I just li- I like to drink wine. So <laughs> when I started this, I had two non-negotiables. I had a few that were sort of like, I can't believe I'm ever going to negotiate, but I had two absolute non-negotiables. They remain the same. So that's coffee and alcohol. Like if I somebody told me like you would add five years to your life if you gave up coffee and alcohol, I'd say no way. I'll, I'll <laughs> you can have the five years. So those are the two. And so I do, you know, obviously I still drink coffee. Now I drink black coffee yeah. uh, and and I drink a couple glasses of wine. Okay. Yeah. That's, that sounds like it's like a not even, I mean, it sounds quite sustainable, quite happy. It is. So the travel yeah. thing is hard. At the beginning, it was really hard. Like that, I think, and one of the, the benefits of having this is that it's a real-time, not real-time, it's sort of a relatively real-time feedback mechanism. So yeah. what I found was that this was really helpful in in learning kind of where hidden carbs. So I had, you know, a couple of experiences where I'd like, there's a big, you know, thing of food trucks outside my office at Mission Bay. And Every once in a while, I'd end up working late and not having a meal there. So I'd have to go out and get something. So I remember one night I went to get pokey and I was like, all right, well, this will be great. It's just going to be tuna and salmon and a bunch of vegetables. But of course, the sauce like has just gobs and gobs of sugar. Yeah, and the next just... morning, my, you know, le- my keto level was like <laughs> in the in the garbage. And and so for me, it was a learning experience to like, all right, well, avoid that sauce. Yep. Um, and so um, I sort of now pack a little bag when I'm traveling that is full of nuts, other like, you know, I'll have like a dried salami or some other thing that's like an, if I'm starving and I can't find a meal on an airplane that's, you know, reasonable, if it's pasta, then, then I'll just eat the nuts and have a little salami or something. So. Yeah, no, I think you bring up a good point that check-in, that, that, that validation is so important when people ask me like, why do you wear a CGM or why do you Mm. finger stick yourself? Well, it's like, at one level, it's like at a certain point, you know uh, probably what your diet will do to you, but there's always these hidden things or yeah. this, there, there are these, these confirmations where you need that personal feedback right. to make sure that you're actually on, uh, you're actually continuing with a virtuous cycle. That's the key. And I think, you know, you hit on it because if you're making all of your meals, you probably don't need it Yeah. because you know what you're putting into it. But, yeah. but even those of us who make the majority of our meals, and I think we're, I'm unusual. I mean, I think, you know, Ray is unusual. We're, most of the world does not make most of the food they put in their bodies. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going out there and putting your trust and there's not a label on it, you're at the whim or the mercy of whoever it is is making. Yeah. And so this is a way of kind of learning. And so it's a, it's not an instantaneous feedback, but that's enough that like, you're not going to go back the next day. Yeah. I've had the experience enough times. I had it with chicken wings. I've had it, you know, one night, I think my, one of my favorite stories is my kids early on when I was starting to do keto said, dad, let's order pizza. And I said, there's no way I'm ordering, I'm not having pizza. And they said, well, please, please, please. So I looked at the menu and found like, all right, well, I'll have chicken wings. And the next morning, my you know, <laughs> numbers fell into the garbage again. Yeah. I went and looked at the leftovers in the fridge and they were you know, breaded and breaded. probably had a lot of sugar on the, yeah. in the sauce and stuff. So that, that's a pretty important, even today, even though I'm pretty sophisticated, I think when it comes to knowing what to eat and what not to eat, I still really depend on that yeah. for learning. Have you guys experimented with exogenous ketones with the keto meter? Yeah, I haven't personally tried it yet, yeah. although I'm going to, yeah. whether I do it here today is a different story, but, but a few of us on the, a uh, few of members of our team have tried it. And okay. again, I have, I, what I've heard is that it makes it does make your score go up, yeah. which is not like, I guess, shocking. Which is consistent with our understanding of how ketone esters or ketone salts would affect acetone production. Yeah. It's not as acute as you would see in blood, yeah. but you will see acetone being breathed out as, in, in, I think it's instead of being like showing up in 15 minutes in your blood, it's about, you know, 90 minutes or 120 yeah. minutes into it. So yeah, it's, it's a it really interesting. I mean, I, I, 
if you look at the pathways in like a biochemistry textbook, it doesn't look like they should go backwards, but there clearly is interconversion. Yeah. And what's, you know, we're learning so much about this biochemistry now that I think, you know, we'd all thought with that was a, this is all solved and settled, but there's obviously a lot more to learn. Acetone itself was always thought to be inert and not really a, a fuel source, but right. it turns out that acetone itself can be converted to acetate and acetate can be a, a source of energy for cells. So I think there's a lot out there, you know, that we're, we're still hoping. Right. People are expecting it's like a signaling molecule. Yeah, I mean, just sure. interesting yeah. work there. Yeah. Tons. I mean, there's uh same with BHB. I mean, the, um, I mean, as you guys know, there's, there's clear evidence that it's, it's able to signal. And so the questions of sort of what it's doing. And again, now that we know that there's, there is conversion between say, beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetone, it's not even necessary for acetone itself to be signaling or to be doing anything biologically. But the fact is we know that there's this equilibrium and they go back and forth. Right. So. so what are the important things to know about keto? So it's on pre-sales now. Yeah. That wraps up in... I don't know. I mean, I think... Uh, <laughs> and then when you guys go to market, when you guys go to launch, what's, what yeah. are all the details here? How do people learn about Yeah, so uh, the, the um, you know, we are on Indiegogo now. You can, you can find the device there and you can pre-order it on Indiegogo. I think our plan last I checked was to, that we're going to go live with our own website in, you know, end of January. Okay. Uh, and how we just sort of approach the launch, that's sort of a work in progress. But, but if you go to our, the, our website is getketo.com. And if you go to that, you'll be kind of moved to the Indiegogo for now where you can pre-order it. I think, you know, as of this morning, there were about 9,000 devices that were sold, which is great. Super exciting for us. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, it's so we're madly working on getting those orders fulfilled. We should start shipping out to the first backers on Indiegogo in the next week or so. And then uh, we'll get those orders fulfilled. We've obviously got more coming from Taiwan and we'll start selling direct to consumers in the next, you know, I would say in the next month or so. I can't tell you how we're going to sell it yet because we haven't decided. I think there's a sort of healthy discussion at, you know, inside the company about sort of what the best business model is. And I'm not going to bore your, you know, listeners with, with that discussion, although it's kind of interesting to think yeah. about. Maybe they have some feedback of how they best want to participate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, uh, the truth is like what we've, what we've seen is that there's definitely, there's interest. I mean, I sort of always Ray hates it when I bring up Weight Watchers, but I always like use Weight Watchers as my frame of reference that people are willing to spend twenty to thirty dollars a month for a program that they're us- largely not using. Like Weight Watchers churns pretty quickly. I think mm. the average customer is on there for roughly nine months, and people just don't even go on the app after a few weeks. And maybe that'll change, but you know they've got a long history, and you know from my standpoint there's not much new there, right? It's going to be the same thing. So the fact is if people are willing to spend that kind of money, then for something that doesn't work, then how much money are they going to spend for something that does work? I'm not the business guy. I get the good news (laughs) is I get to be the scientist and like the doc and just like sit around and like try and sound smart uh, and, and let these guys handle the business discussions. But, but our goal as a company, I think the principle is that we want this to be widely available. We would love this to be available to as many people as possible. And we don't want price to be a barrier. So currently it's priced at $99. I think, you know, we'd aspire to have that come down. And I think we expect it will come down. How we sort of end up on what we land on with the eventual business model is it's something that's a work in progress. Cool. Very exciting. Yeah. So beyond, you know, beyond the initial rollout of keto, what are the big goals for you 2019, whether with keto, the the company, or with your research or with your yeah. practice? Any 
broad things to look out for in 2019 from you? Yeah, I mean, I had such a good exercise to do and I wish I had had the time to like really sit down and do that. But I've been so, frankly, I've been so busy. I basically have two jobs, right? So I'm a, cl- I'm a clinician, I've got patients. And I, I tell Ray, like, my number one obligation is to my family. My number two obligation is to my patients. I've got this other job that I need to do as well, which is like running a lab. And I've also like incredibly invested in keto. So I'm doing a lot of different things. And I think for me, learning how to balance all that is hard. But this is my first time doing a startup. And as you guys know, it's uh, it's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of work that sort of seems like it's done and then it's not. And then work <laughs> that comes out of nowhere. And so right now I'm just having fun. And it's we have a great, amazing team. I mean, just like really so blessed to have the, the best partners right now. And so I still am amazed at what we've been able to get done in such a short period of time with such a small group of people and with such limited resources. So I think, you know, I'm excited about what to see going forward. I, I can't predict what's going to happen with me or with keto or with anything, or even with my lab, you know, down two months down the road, but, but it's definitely, I'm as ex- I'm the most excited one to kind of see where everything ends up. Awesome. And then for the folks that are interested in keeping track, you're on Twitter. Yeah. Your handle is Ethan... Ethan J. Weiss. Ethan J. Yeah. Weiss. Yeah. I, and I, I would say like I had a massive Twitter addiction. I still have a massive Twitter addiction. I just don't have as much time. Like I think part of my Twitter time has been taken up by keto. So <laughs> um, productive. I'm still there. I still love it. And I, I, I still think it's the best medium for interacting with with people, especially when it comes to things like science and medicine and things like that. I really, really can't say enough good things about that. And what I've learned, the people I've met... I mean, in, indirectly, I met Ray through Twitter, and there are other a lot of other people that I probably actually my lab is basically comprised of people I've met indirectly through Twitter. So yeah. I really enjoy what I get out of, of yeah, Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw I first started track following you through through Twitter. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. Yeah, it connects everyone. It's it's pretty cool. It's also it's you know it happens to also fit with my personality. Like I I like to be you know crass and irreverent there are you a little bit yeah i definitely <laughs> do but it's fun i mean that, that's the beautiful thing about the medium is that you're you, it's a really democratic right i mean i remember early on when i was you know still kind of getting to understand it the fact that you could like reach out and have a conversation with these people that should otherwise be inaccessible to you yeah like that was pretty amazing i mean yeah. I, I remember having like you know i won't na- name names but i remember having like legitimate conversations twitter conversations with people i was like i can't believe this and I'm sure there are people out there who have those conversations with me, I mean, today thinking the same thing, which is yeah. super strange. But the fact is, like, that's the beautiful thing is that you can access anybody. It doesn't mean that they're going to respond all the time, but people do tend to respond. I mean, I think people yeah, on Twitter that, do tend to respond. That's one question that I've, I've asked a lot of our previous guests. How do you think Twitter has changed science communication? Because I think on one hand, you see this polarization you have people just arguing. Yeah. It's almost a religious holy yeah, war for some of the nutrition diet yeah. discussion, vegan versus carnivore yeah. versus keto versus, you know, balanced diet. Yeah. Do you think that's helpful? Do you think it's productive? I mean, obviously it sounds like you, you like the kind of argument, let's get it out there, duke it out. But do you think it polarizes the conversation? Much? I do. It absolutely does. I mean, just like it does in politics or religion right. or anything else. I mean, it, or sports. I mean, you can look at the, the places in the world where we as human beings tend to find like this community and identify with communities. And in the case of science, it's not healthy. So I, <laughs> I if I, if you ever see like a little plant or a little piece of meat in my Twitter handle, please just like, <laughs> you have permission to hit me in the head with a baseball bat. Don't, I come at science as not something that you advocate for. You're not a for, partisan, right? Ad, you just want you, to see the data. You, d- you advocate for the truth. Yeah. And I think I would hope that, that everybody else would, would take that approach of saying, look, what all we all want, our shared common goal is we want to find out 
the truth. We want to find out the answers. I don't want to advocate. I'm not hoping, you know, if it turns out the ketogenic diet causes people to die of heart attacks, we, I will be the first one to get out there and say uh, we were wrong on this. Yeah. Just as I, I'm the first one to say I was wrong on calcium scores, or I was wrong on LPAA, or I was wrong on keto in the first place. So I think uh, I just hope people kind of can keep their partisan dogmatic religiousness to places where like sports, where like it's okay. <laughs> like if you're a Philadelphia Eagles fan and, you know, you want to, hate a Dallas Cowboys fan, that's fine. But there's no room for that. But that said, like, it's awesome that you can have a healthy academic intellectual conversation about something and like question data in real time. I mean, the discussions that happen in Twitter around science are amazing. And so I've learned, I've learned so much, uh, much more than I ever did in any other way. I mean, like, I, I, every day it's a learning experience for me. And so you find people out there to people who are like new to the media, go find people out there who, who like, you know, are your trusted source of information. Don't just have, find one, find lots and like, you know, cultivate the lists of people that you want to follow and get your information from. And, and there are tons, uh, there's such good information. There's people out there who I can't believe how much they read. And so I, every morning, my routine is when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is scroll through my Twitter feed and, and I'll update sort of like on what are the the newest scientific papers. And I've got a group of people that I follow really closely. And, and that's my way of keeping up with the literature. And, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. It sounds like you have a productive way of using that platform as opposed to getting too sucked into the, to the yeah, I mean, distraction it, of it. It is, look, it's, the politics thing is a whole different world. I've done, I think I pat myself on the back. I've done a pretty good job of like steering out of that mess. I was way stuck in that morass for, you know, after the election. And I think it got to be really non unproductive and yeah. like bad. And I think it also started to erode relationships and it was just definitely the wrong thing. So I, I basically stopped paying attention to politics as best I could. And yeah. it was one of the best things I ever did. And so I try really hard to avoid getting in politics on Twitter, of course, every once in a while you can't help it, but, but, uh, I, I try and stay away from that stuff as much as I can. Yeah. Well, well said, I think on, on, on just not being partisan on dogma, but just actually finding truth. I think that's what yeah. all, I think scientists, that's the, that's the job of science. That's the job of creating products for people and service for people, making p things that people want and, and works for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people come, my, when young people, when the people in my lab come to me and they say, Hey, Ethan, I've got bad news. We got, we got the wrong result. I say, what are you talking about? The wrong, we, we, there's no wrong result. Like we didn't get the result that we expected to get, but this is learning. Like if we get the results that we expect to get every time, then let then we should stop doing the experiments because it's a waste of time. Like why even bother to do to go through the the actual activity of actually right. doing it? Because if you know what you're going to get, then don't waste your time. So um, our job is to be super thoughtful and critical and question, 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 and be humble. Probably the biggest thing above, above all is to be humble. Cool. We'll leave it at that. I'm yeah. really excited to try out keto. Awesome. Follow Ethan at Ethan J. Weiss on Twitter. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Thanks for Jeff. coming in. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit.
Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.